1 Corinthians chapter 7. I've decided I better be careful what I say in the pulpit. I was talking last time about getting those extortioners, the swindlers that call and always saying, um, your car warranty has expired, which I thought was funny because I mentioned my car was 34 years old and then somebody called me and said, would you like a car? So that was sweet. I've just thanked the Lord for his many blessings and for those willing to be used by him. Um, Before we get started, I wanted to mention, as soon as I got through preaching, it was five weeks ago, got through with the sermon, I'm not doing this to embarrass Jerry, but he came up and said, did you skip a verse on purpose? (laughs) I said, no, what did I skip? So he showed me, and I wanted to say, I didn't tell him then, but I wanted to say something I think every teacher has said at least once. And that is, I was just testing you to see if you were listening. (laughs) So after we pray, we're going to cover that verse and then pick up in chapter 7. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again that we have some time to go to your word. We thank you for the spiritual food that we receive from it. We thank you for the Holy Spirit as our teacher. We thank you for the lesson we had in Sunday school. We pray that you would give us what we need and that with all this we could take it and use it to be pleasing to you, that we might hear at the judgment seat, well done, thou good and faithful servant. We pray this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So the verse that I missed was chapter 6. So if you'll back up one chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11. And you remember the context here, he was asking him a question, you know that the unrighteous, he says in verse 9, shall not inherit the kingdom of God. We talked about that because I think everyone here knows that's not just talking about going to heaven, that's talking about the inheritance in the kingdom. And he lists a whole bunch of things that we went over, that if a person is living these lifestyles and practicing these things, they will not enter the kingdom to rule and reign with Christ. But notice what he says in verse 11, the verse I skipped. It says, and such were some of you. So as he writes to these believers in Corinth, he said, some of you were living these lifestyles. Some of you were doing these things. He says, but ye are washed. We're going to talk about that a little bit this morning. You're washed. It says, but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Now, it would take too, too long a time, I think, in the, in the time that we have to cut, do a whole study on sanctification and justification, but I do want to talk about the washing. There are actually two kinds of washings for the believer, and I think it comes out clearly. If you hold your place here, we'll be back in 1 Corinthians in a moment, and flip over to John, the Gospel of John, chapter 13. John, chapter 13. This is the chapter that when Jesus is instituting the Lord's Supper, as they had it uh, on that night before his crucifixion. And there are some things that John records that the other gospel writers did not. And I'm going to read quickly just to get the context, but let's uh, go ahead and start in verse 1. John chapter 13, verse 1. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of this world unto the Father, 
having loved his own which were in the world. He loved them to the end. And supper being ended, the devil, having now put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, I want to point out, and I know you know this already, the devil has put this thought into Judas. Later, he actually enters into him. The second time that Satan possesses, and he will only do that one more time in the coming Antichrist. The first was in the garden, um, the garden of Eden in the serpent. So he, he puts this thought in Judas' mind. Verse 3, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he was come from God and went to God, he rises from supper and laid aside his garments, took a towel and girded himself. After he pours water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet, I'll pause a moment. Um, Baptist churches don't do this. I don't know if you've ever been to a church that does. It's sort of a, I experienced it once in a church called the Church of the Brethren, but it's a humbling experience. It, it feels odd to let somebody wash your feet, but um, so I'm not talking about that this morning, but I want to bring something out about this washing. So he takes the towel, he girds himself, verse 5, after that, this is Jesus, pours the water in a basin, began to wash the disciples' feet. You know, if we think about it, we would think, and they did too, shouldn't it be the other way around? Shouldn't they be washing Jesus' feet? But no, Jesus was giving an example here, and he was washing their feet. Going on to verse 5, and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded, verse 6, then comes he to Simon Peter. We all know Peter was the one that usually had something to say. Um, you've heard the expressions, open mouth, insert foot. Uh, Peter was often like that. He, he just spoke. But he was speaking from the heart. He said, and Peter said to him, Lord, dost thou wash my feet? Verse 7, Jesus answered and said to him, what I do Thou knowest not now. You don't fully understand, but thou shalt know hereafter. Verse 8, Peter said to him, Thou shalt never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, and notice Jesus' response. This is important that we see this. If I wash thee not, thou hast no part with me. Now that's not talking about going to heaven. Peter was already going there. When it says in the scripture, having a part with him, with Jesus, with Christ, that's talking about ruling in the coming kingdom. And this washing he's talking about is not, it's a different washing, uh, because it's the washing of the feet represents something different from what he's going to talk about in a moment. But notice, if we as believers, if we don't get washed like this in verse 8, we will have no part with Christ in the coming kingdom. Look at verse 9. Simon Peter said to him, Lord... Not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Well, if that's the case, then wash me all over. And notice Jesus again, verse 10, his response. He said to him, he that is washed, we just read in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11, and he said, and such were some of you, but you are washed. That's this kind of washed. Jesus said, he that is washed need not save to wash his feet. In other words, you don't need to take a whole bath. You've already had a bath. Now, that's the literal example. We'll talk about the physical in a second. You don't need to have a whole bath. You've already had a bath. You just need, it's your feet that got dirty, especially in that day. Uh, most people wore sandals, which are open, and uh, walking on the dust and the dirt all the time, their feet got dirty. And so it was the feet that got dirty. But think about all through the Bible, the word walk. It uses the word walk to represent our Christian lives. It uses that to represent our daily 
life as a believer. And our feet get dirty. We are washed. In other words, we're saved. We are are going to heaven because of the Lord Jesus Christ shedding his blood on the cross and all of that, the sin nature, that uh, penalty was paid by Jesus on the cross. So that is the washing. We've been bathed in that sense. But it's our feet that need to be washed. It said, but is clean every whit, and ye are clean, but not all. And of course, he's referring to Judas. He said, all 11 of you are clean, one is not. Verse 11, for he knew who should betray him. Therefore, he said, ye are not all clean. So after he had washed their feet and had taken his garments and was set down again, he said to them, know ye not what I've done to you? If I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. So he's talking about that attitude of a servant. And here is our Master doing this and is an example to us. For I have given you an example, verse 15, that ye should do as I have done to you. Verily, verily, I send to you, the servant is not greater than his Lord, neither he that is sent greater than he that sent him. Uh, if you'll come back now with me to 1 Corinthians. I wanted to cover that just because the idea of washed here. So yes, we're washed, we're saved. But as Christians, our feet still get dirty. We still have sin. 1 John 1, 9, I don't know who said it, but a long time ago I heard someone call 1 John 1, 9 the Christian's bar of soap. If, it's, if you know, we, we all know the scripture, it says, if we confess our sins... And the word confess means admit. You can't admit to something you're not convicted of. So when God, through the scripture, convicts us of sin, then we admit to him that it's wrong. That's confess. If we confess, and we, John's including himself, so believers, if it's not lost people doing this to get saved, that's us doing it. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. That's the sins we do in our Christian life. And, I like the last part of the verse a lot, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You know, the things that we're not even aware of. We might have offended someone, we might have said something and it hurt their feelings, we didn't know anything about it. But he forgives us all of that too. All right, so that's the verse I skipped. Now let's pick up in chapter 7. Now we already did the first um, a few verses last time through, verse five, five verses, and that was five weeks ago, so we'll, we'll pick up. But I wanted to mention this. He's mentioning things that are good, and things that are better. Um, but he says not everybody can do the better. He's going to talk about why that is. He wishes everybody could do the better thing, but not everybody can. So he, he gives certain things that he talks about. And I want to tell you a story real quick before we start in verse 6. When I went to seminary, the president was Dr. Duke McCall. This was Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. And he retired, and Dr. Honeycutt Honeycutt took over, and the first thing he said, he got up in the pulpit, we had chapel every morning, and he said, and I want you to listen closely, you might have heard this before, but he said, the Bible contains the Word of God. Now that might sound right, but it's not right. He wasn't saying the Bible is the Word of God. He was saying the Bible contains the Word of God, that you have to find it. It's in there somewhere. You've got to find what it is and what it isn't. And so he said, I believe, he said, in spot inspirationism, which means he said he believed part of the Bible was inspired and part was not inspired. And I thought, wow, if we had to go through and figure out which parts were and which 
weren't, that would be awful convenient. We didn't like a part, we'd say, well, God didn't inspire that part. But that's what they did. And this is in verse 6, an example. This is one of the verses in chapter 7 that he would use an example to say that Paul was not inspired in everything he said. Look at verse, uh, which I don't believe, of course, but let's look at verse 6, and I know you don't either, but it says, Paul says, but I speak this by permission and not of commandment. That doesn't mean Paul was inspired to say that. What it means is this was not a commandment that Jesus taught about. Specifically, when Jesus was here, he didn't teach about this. But you'll notice he speaks it by permission. You can't, you can't be inspired if the Word of God, if you're writing these things, if you're not being permitted by God to do it. So everything we're looking at is inspired by God. He gave lots of, you know, we already covered the first few verses, but you remember he was talking about it's good for a man not to marry, but if you have to marry, you know, it's better to marry than to burn. We got a lot of that coming up in a moment. And so we'll see what all that means. But let's look at verse 7. He says, for I would, that's the old English word means that I, I desire, I wish, that all men were even as I myself. And he's obviously referring to the fact that he's unmarried. And he explains in the chapter why he wishes that. He says, but every man hath his proper gift of God, one after this manner and another after that. So he's explaining that not everybody has this gift from God that they can remain unmarried without sinning. So he's real careful to mention that. Jesus actually talked about this. And holding your place here, let's go to uh, Matthew chapter 19. Matthew was inspired to write down what Jesus taught. Matthew chapter 19. And again, I'll read quickly because we've got a lot of verses and time's going quickly. Okay, chapter 19, I'll start in verse 1. It came to pass that when Jesus had finished these sayings, he departed from Galilee, came to the coast of Judea beyond Jordan, that's the Jordan River, and great multitudes followed him and he healed them there. The Pharisees also came to him. The word tempting means they were testing him, trying to see if they could trip him up. Saying to him, is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? So they're asking, is it okay to divorce? Is it okay to get a divorce for any reason? Verse 4, and he, Jesus, answered and said to them, Have ye not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female? That's in Genesis. We have all studied that. Don't you know that? Don't you, haven't you read that? And of course they had. It's a rhetorical question. Verse 5, and said, and he quotes it, Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, For this cause shall a man leave father and mother, shall cleave to his wife, and they, and the old English word twain, which we say two now, they too shall be one flesh. I wish we had time to do Ephesians 5 again this morning, but we don't. But you know the mystery that Paul is talking about when he talks about the bride of Christ. All right, the two become one flesh. He said, so you've read this. He said, you've read it in Genesis, so you know the two become one flesh. Verse 6, wherefore... That's a connecting word. They are no more two, but one flesh. They're not two anymore. What therefore God has joined together, let not man, that's any human being, put asunder or separate. So we know that we've heard this in weddings. 
and people go through this, but he says, you, you've read all that, and that's in Genesis. Now, verse 7, they say unto him, so this, they're now asking Jesus, but why did Moses then command to give a writing of divorcement and to put her away? Notice Jesus' response, verse 8. He said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, suffered, that word means allowed, allowed you to put away your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And Jesus said, and I say unto you, whosoever shall put away his wife, except. We notice here Jesus gives one condition. One, he um, says there's one reason that you can get divorced. So he says, except it be for fornication. Now remember, we've talked about the word fornication. You know you've studied in the Bible. It's a whole host of sins. It's immorality. And so all of these sins that are in that list, if that happens, if the spouse is unfaithful, it doesn't mean they have to get divorced because sometimes they agree to forgive and go on. But they can without committing adultery. So Jesus says, unless it's for fornication and shall marry another commits adultery. So anybody's doing it for another reason, that's what they're doing. And whoso marries her which is put away does commit adultery. Verse 10, his disciples say unto him, if the case of the man be so with his wife, it is not good to marry. Well, that might seem like a logical conclusion. But notice verse 11, but Jesus said unto them, all men cannot receive this saying, save they to whom it is given. Remember we just read what Paul talked about in 1 Corinthians 7. Everyone has his proper gift. That's why he was saying it's, it's, it's okay to marry. It's better if you don't, but some people have to if they don't have this gift. Now, notice what Jesus said. This is the last verse we're going to do here, verse 12. Jesus said, For there are some eunuchs who were so born from their mother's womb. There are people born never being able to father children. The next, it says, And there are some eunuchs which are made eunuchs of men. Now, whether that is intentionally done or by accident, some people in maybe war and some type of accidents, this has occurred. And then he says, and there be eunuchs which have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. And so those are the three examples. Notice what he concludes with. He that is able to receive it, let him receive it. So come back, if, if you will, with me to verse Corinthians 7. So not everybody can do this. And so he strongly suggests if you're in too much temptation, if a believer is too much temptation, then they need to marry because otherwise it can cause sin. Verse 7. I see we did verse 7. So 1 Corinthians chapter 7, um, and we'll read all of verse 7 now. For I would that all men were even as I myself, but every man hath his proper gift of God, one after this manner and another after that. So there's different gifts, and that was some we read of in Matthew. Verse 8. I say therefore to the unmarried... And widows, so that's those who have not yet married, and those who were married and their spouses died. To both groups, he suggests this. It is good for them if they abide even as I. So he's saying it's, it's good if they stay married. I mean unmarried. It's good if they stay that. Now he gives specific recommendations for the age of the widow, all of those things. But anyway, verse 9. But if they cannot contain... 
let them marry, for it's better to marry than to burn. And he's not talking about in hell. He's writing to Christians, and all Christians are going to be in hell. This is burning with that desire that could cause them to sin. So he said, if that's the case, they need to go ahead and marry. Verse 10, and unto the married I command, yet not I, but the Lord. Again, I, I remind you, Dr. Honeycutt got up and said, oh, that, that's just Paul giving his opinion. What he means is that Jesus didn't command this in everything that Jesus taught, but it's inspired by God. So unto the married I command, yet not I, but the Lord, let not the wife depart from her husband. He's going to give a reason why spouses should try to stay together. Verse 11. He says first, but if she depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. I was unaware of the fact that there are some marriages where they separate and then get back together. But I can say, when I was in college, my grandparents did that. My grandmother got divorced. Um, she didn't get saved till she was in her 50s. She got saved. She realized that was wrong, and she got back together with my grandfather. So sometimes that happens. But said, let her remain unmarried or get back with her husband, and let not the husband put away his wife. So don't divorce her. Verse 12. But to the rest speak I, not the Lord. Again, this is a specific commandment, Jesus said. If any brother has a wife that believes not, and she is pleased to dwell with him, let him not put her away. So in other words, you're not forced to do that. Verse 13. And the woman who has a husband that believes not, and if, if he be pleased to dwell with her, let her not leave him. So he's given an example of uh, possibilities you see here. It's a husband that isn't a believer. So he's suggesting you don't have to get separated. And he's going to say why. Verse 14. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife. Now, it looks like it might be saying that that's automatic. And that would contradict all the rest of the scripture. So that's not automatic. But there's no way any effect can happen if they don't stay together. Go on to the next part in verse 14. And the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Else were your children unclean, but now are they holy. But if the unbelieving, verse 15, if the unbelieving depart, that is those who are not believing, let him depart. So in other words, let it happen. Let him leave. Not forced to stay with them. A brother or sister is not under bondage in such case. I want to pause here a moment because there are two interpretations here. One, quite, quite frankly, doesn't make sense to me, but it is preached and a lot of people believe it, and I don't know that I can be dogmatic. It says they're not under bondage in such case. I don't believe Paul's just talking about having to stay married, but I think he's saying they're not, they're, that the bondage is not... How can I say this? That they're also free to remarry. Otherwise, the, the bondage doesn't make any sense. I, I mean, that's... That's my interpretation, but you have to let God lead you in what you believe. Go on to the end of verse 15. But God, and this is what he emphasizes through all this, God has called us to peace. There are no perfect marriages, right? We all know that, but that's because we're human beings. But the main thing he's talking about is peace. There needs to be peace. That's the number one focus. Verse 16. For what knowest thou, and here he gives the example why we should, they should stay together, O wife, whether thou shalt save your husband. In other words, he might become a believer. 
Or how, and, and by the way, I should also add, not just a lost person. You know, in Hebrews, we find there's unbelieving believers. You can have a carnal Christian. Maybe a spouse is not growing in the Lord, and they're living a life that's not pleasing to God. So they can be influenced that way as well. It says, or verse 16, going on, Or how knowest thou, O man, whether thou shalt save your wife? Again, the opposite. Verse 17, But as God has distributed to every man, as the Lord has called everyone, so let him walk. He's going to give you examples of what, what that is in a moment. And so or ordain, excuse me, and so ordain I in all the churches. Verse 18, here's what he says. Is any man called being circumcised? In other words, when you were saved, if you were uncircumcised, um, or excuse me, first it says circumcised, let him not become uncircumcised. Which you know he's not talking about literal because that can't be done. Think about that. You're circum- you can't be uncircumcised. So that's not literal. He's just saying you've got... You know, the whole thing, Paul was writing to the Galatians, and he said, how can you so soon be, he used the word bewitched, like they were, like somebody cast a spell on them when they started, suddenly started believing the Judaizers that said, oh, now you've got to go back under the law, and you've got to do this, and you've got to do that. We had to be circumcised, so you've got to be circumcised, all that stuff. So let's look at the end of verse 18. Let him not become uncircumcised. Is any called in uncircumcision, uncircumcision let him not be circumcised. So he's just saying that part doesn't matter. Verse 19, circumcision is nothing. And uncircumcision is nothing. He means it's nothing spiritual. It doesn't have any meaning. You go back to Genesis and find out it was a token for the Jews. So it doesn't, when you come to the church, it doesn't have anything spiritual meaning. It says, but the keeping of the commandments of God. That's what's important for us as believers, keeping his commandments. Verse 20, let every man abide in the same calling in which he was called. Are you called being a servant? Care not for it, but if you may be made free, use it rather. You know, we talk about examples today of business owners and those who work for someone. You know, all those examples you can think of. Verse 22, for he that is called in the Lord, and notice this goes both ways, and he uses both, exa- both examples. He that is called in the Lord being a servant is the Lord's free man. And now look at he turns it around. Likewise also, he that is called being free is Christ's servant. Verse 23, notice what he says. The same thing was, was the case for servants. And that's what we are for God. Ye are bought with a price. So, you know, when we talk about the word redemption, that has to do with something that's purchased. It's, it's you could say, bought back. It's redeemed. And the price was our Lord Jesus Christ giving his life. So we're bought with a price. And so he says, be not ye the servants of men. Verse 24, brethren, let every man wherein he is called therein abide with God. Okay, we've got a few minutes. We'll go a little bit further. Verse 25, now concerning virgins. Now that means, of course, uh, unmarried uh, daughters. It was the custom, especially in that day, and in some cultures still today, where it was the responsibility of the father in whether a daughter would get married or not and whom she would marry, in fact. He says, now concerning virgin, 
uh, the virgins, the virgin daughters, the unmarried. I have no commandment of the Lord. This isn't something Jesus specifically taught about, but it's inspired. Yet I give my judgment as one that hath obtained mercy of the Lord to be faithful. I suppose, therefore, that it is good for the present distress. I say that it is good for a man so to be. And then he gives this example. Are thou bound unto a wife? Seek not to be loosed. Are thou loosed from a wife? Seek not a wife. But, again, he gives this but, but and if you marry, you have not sinned. And if a, a virgin, that is a virgin daughter, marry, she has not sinned. Nevertheless, such shall have trouble in the flesh, but I spare you. So let's th think about what he's saying here. He's going to give an example. The difference in what it is for the married couple as opposed to those who are not. He said, I wish I could spare you of that. But verse 29 says, but this I say, brethren, the time is short. And I think about, he was writing at the beginning of the fifth day. We're now at the end of the sixth day. And our Lord's coming back at the beginning of the seventh day. And so, in other words, that's pretty soon. The time is short. And if you don't know that, it means you're not aware of the signs of the times. Jerry preached on, uh, not Jerry, uh, Jimmy preached on that not long ago. You, it's obvious, the signs. The time is short. It remains that both they that have wives be as though they had none. And they that weep as though they wept not. So he gives examples not even to do with Mary. You don't even have time to mourn. And they that rejoice as though they rejoice not. You don't have time for celebrations. That's how short the time is. And they that buy as though they possess not. And they that use this world as not abusing it. For the fashion of this world passes away. Okay, we only got a couple of minutes. Verse 32. But I would, that's a word again, I desire, I wish... I would have you without carefulness or full of care or anxiety. I don't want you to be anxious about this. He that is unmarried cares for the things that belong to the Lord. Because he doesn't have to care about anything but that. But it says how he may please the Lord. But notice verse 33. But he that is married cares for the things that are of the world, how he may please his wife. It's not that there's anything wrong with that. That's the responsibility of the husband. But that's going to take up some time. Verse 34, there is a difference also between a wife and a virgin. The unmarried woman cares for the things of the Lord, that she may be holy, both in the body and in spirit. But she that is married cares for the things of the world, how she might please her husband. Again, nothing wrong with that. That's what a marriage is and what it should be. Verse 35, and this I speak for your own profit, not that I may cast a snare upon you, but for that which is comely, and, and that ye may attend upon the Lord without distraction. He said, if that were possible, I would spare you, as we go back to verse 28. Verse 36, but if any man think that he behaves himself uncomely toward his virgin, meaning his virgin daughter, if she pass the flower of her age, in other words, she reaches um, um, physical maturity, and needs so require, in other words, she has to, she doesn't have the gift, let him do what he will, he sins not, let them marry. Verse 37, nevertheless, he that stands steadfast in his heart, having no necessity, but has power over his own will and has so decreed in his heart that he will keep his virgin daughter, does well. So then he that gives her in a marriage does well, he that gives her not in marriage does 
better. Remember I said from the beginning, there's good and there's better, but not everybody can do the better. And we'll close in two more verses. Verse 39, the wife is bound by the law as long as her husband lives. Remember, and I believe that's except for that exception. Otherwise, that wouldn't make any sense. But if her husband be dead, she is at liberty to be married to whom she will. And notice, this is a recommendation that's, that's important for us as believers. He says, only in the Lord. It shouldn't be a person's own choosing. It should be the guidance of the Lord in, in the Lord. Verse 40, but she is happ happier if she so abide after my judgment, what Paul was talking about, and I think also I have the Spirit of God. We run out of time. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these scriptures as Paul wrote to the church at Corinth. We know that all scripture is given by inspiration from you and is profitable for doctrine. So we know it's all for us to study. And though this message may not be directly for everyone here, we're thankful that your word gives us what we need. And we pray that whoever needs what they heard would be faithful to it. We thank you for every gift that you've given each one here at this church. And we know we all have different abilities. We pray that we would use them to honor and glorify you. And we ask it in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.